Hey, Jeff Fuller back with you. I uh, trust you guys are well. I have a special guest today, and uh, this is so special. I don't know if I should do the uh, church website or the sports one, but we're going to tell both, I guess, and we're going to repost to both. So on uh, YouTube, it's Living Hope Wesleyan Church, uh, also Jay Fuller Interviews, and for the podcast, it will be uh, the Backfire Podcast with Jeff Fuller of Jay Fuller Interviews, as well as Living Hope Wesleyan. And if you did not get all that, that will be in the show notes, and you can certainly uh, link and share, and certainly you want to hear this story because I believe people's stories make our stories better if we will just listen and learn, unlearn what we thought was right and relearn what is true because God's grace never fails us. And one with a, an amazing story is Matt Mayer. Matt, how are you? Hey guys, Jeff, thank you for the opportunity to be on the show with you. This is an awesome platform to, like you just said, tell stories and hopefully inspire people to do the next right thing. Yeah, for sure. And so I have a goofy question to start because that's kind of how I am. Uh, how often do you get confused with like that singer-songwriter, Matt Mayer? Very frequently, actually. So there's a history with that. And I don't want to let the cat out of the bag by telling you one of the details of my testimony. But let's just say I was receiving his mail for a season and apparently he was receiving some of my mail. So people wow. were assuming that I was the Christian singer songwriter which was pretty hilarious considering um my background so i'll leave it at that where did you grow up i grew up in south jersey cape may courthouse specifically that is the southern tip of new jersey born and raised down there did grade school high school and then eventually went to temple university in philadelphia which wasn't too far from my hometown roots now did you play soccer at temple I did. I played soccer at Temple. That was my primary sport. Growing up, I played every sport, baseball, basketball, soccer in high school, was a standout soccer star, as well as a point guard for Middle Township High School, our basketball team, where we won, in my junior year at least, a state championship. So a lot of people don't know that is a fun sports trivia about Matt Mayer is that I, I have uh, good ball skills and was able to handle the rock. So that's part of my history in sports. Well, I love basketball. That's my uh, preferred sport. I was never any good at anything else, not even that good at basketball, but uh, that's pretty cool. And so I heard you on Sports Spectrum with Jason Romano. He's been a guest on my show, and he's just a phenomenal guy. And uh, that's the first time I heard about you. When, man, I don't even know where to start, but what year were you incarcerated? Wow. So if anybody's listening to this interview, that's that's the way to let it out. Yeah, I was incarcerated, which means I did prison time in January of 2010, all the way through behind a wall to August of 2014. That came out to be approximately 55 months, so almost five years. As I often say, an inmate of the state, my inmate number was 314525E. My state number was 648829. Those are numbers that are just seared into your memory. And mm. of course, the question that most people would be asking at this point is, wait a second, how did you end up there? And of yeah, course- let's not, let's not get there yet. Uh, so it's been a decade since, uh, man, pretty, pretty crazy. When we think about this cancel car culture, now you're a pastor, so I let that out of the bag too. So if somebody goes to your church and they just are inspired, they just feel like, man, there's love and truth and grace and just so much conviction, but help, freedom available. But then they find out your past. How glad are you that uh, God did not cancel uh, your past as far as allowing you to do things for him now? Yeah, I've said recently that cancel culture can cancel people, but they'll never be able to cancel the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that God saves sinners, all sinners, anyone from anywhere who's done anything. And I found in ministry that my background, my sin, my faults, my failures, my flaws, they highlight the grace of God. Again, grace is not a license to continue on in sin, but grace, when you truly understand it and you truly taste it, it gives you access to him, to God. So the more you spend time in God's good graces and, and the presence of God, the more you don't want to sin. You don't become sinless, you sin less. So people that come into my church and they hear me preach, they sense that 
that young man has experienced God's grace. And that's really, really what I want people to get when they hear my testimony. What kind of family structure did you grow up in? Solid Christian household. I'm the youngest of four boys. So mother and father. My father was a career man, law enforcement official of my entire youth. When I say law enforcement, he eventually became the chief of police in our hometown. So that in and of itself brought a standard of how we should conduct ourselves as young men, standout athletes, good students. My mother was a stay-at-home mother. Her primary role was train up her children in the way we should go, as the Bible instructs. And when we get older, we would not depart from it. So solid upbringing. I say to people all the time about my mother and father, they lived out their faith, right? No compromise. They were men and women of integrity and accountability. If we erred or made mistakes, my father was very quick to say, own it, take responsibility, be accountable to the consequences, no matter what they are and then get up and do the next right thing. So my frame of reference as a young man, one, watching my three older brothers live life. So I learned quickly and picked up kind of like a not so mentioned nickname around my household. Like people didn't know this about me, except for my inner circle that I was, I was like an old man. They called me pop. I was just like an old man, an old soul. And I was like this little guy who would watch my older brothers and imitate them. So that created the best of my upbringing, but also one of four boys, as you can imagine, we were little savages and we had to, <laughs> we had to learn how to fall under the reign of our parents so that we could not be, you know, unruly, so to speak. But yeah. I still have to say it was an unbelievable upbringing. I have no regrets about the way my mother and my father raised me and my three older brothers. So I know with sports, especially sometimes it's good to have older siblings because they push you and you don't know to be scared because you just know like you fought with your brothers the whole time. That's did right. you grow? Did you grow up with a chip on your shoulder when you were trying to play soccer, especially at the college level? You know what? So because of being the youngest, I played up several years in every sport. So while my older brothers were competing, I would often compete with them. So when I dropped down to my actual age group, I was already heads and shoulders above my peers. But that created in me an attitude of complacency where I would just do enough to be the best, but I wouldn't push myself. Contrary to or comparatively to one of my other older brothers, there is four of us. There was John, who's the oldest, then Anthony, Michael, and then myself. My brother Anthony was an outstanding soccer player. Jeffrey, you'd be you know, surprised to hear that he was a 10-year professional as well. Mm -hmm. And he had to work hard, apparently, for every single accomplishment on the soccer field. And the, you know, they would kind of say Matt didn't have to work as hard because the, the ability came natural. So it wasn't like there was a chip on the shoulder. It wasn't, I didn't have the drive that probably would have been necessary to be an elite. I did just enough to be better than everybody else around me. Um, whether that was academically speaking or athletically speaking. And again, I say I took it for granted. I took the gifts God gave me for granted my entire young life. I did not apply myself the way I should have. And I look back in hindsight and I use that as the frame of reference to say how God had blessed me and I mismanaged it. And I don't ever want to mismanage the blessings he's given me today. That's so good. Hey, so what was the transition from high school to college as far as building your body? Was it just a work ethic, the practice? Because you're a full-time student, you're a full-time athlete. How did you balance that? And how did you adjust from being just a high school athlete to a collegiate athlete? Great. So the levels between high school, obviously, at, at any level, even playing on some of the, the better high school age travel teams, there is such a gap between high school soccer and at least division one programs. All of the athletes in a D one program were the best on their high school teams or the best on their travel teams. And you put us all together and obviously that pressure and that competition, it only pushes you to go harder. So, um, was always naturally strong again, being one of four boys, never one to back down. So there was always a natural strength. I also, I often tell kids when they ask, what should they do to separate themselves from their peers? I spent a lot of time working on my craft. So even though I just got done saying earlier, I didn't apply myself. 
I, I did enough. I ran on my own. I lifted weights on my own. So when I entered college, even as a freshman, I was able to hold my own with, with the upperclassmen. Everybody knew that about me. I was not going to back down. I was a strong forward, a striker, um, perhaps hard-headed, had good skills with my footwork. Um, you know, so there was definitely a different level. You had to respond quicker. The game was quicker. You had to make decisions in a split second. You had to think a couple passes ahead. So if you did not have that type of mentality, even though you may have had the physicality, the mentality to respond quickly, if you didn't have it, you'd be exposed at the next level. And that gap only increases from collegiate sports to professional sports. So let's fast forward. And as is a tendency, at least of mine, being a pastor, I try to over-spiritualize everything. I don't want to, but being quick adapting, I think sometimes Christians can mask what is really there. As you said, it gets exposed at the college level versus high school. You are now a pastor, specifically using what you've learned through sports. How do you apply that or bring that into play, whether it's through one-on-one discipleship, counseling, and your preaching what have you learned from sports that automatically transfers to the spiritual life? Yeah, so obviously discipline, having the discipline to be a physical athlete. I mean, the Bible even talks about the benefits of athletics, physically speaking, and how they translate into a spiritual discipline. So I understood what it took to drive my physical body to be the best. So you translate that physical, I guess you would say consumption, what you put into your body is going to translate what comes out of your body. That's the same spiritual truth, right? I have to have a discipline to not only study God's word, know it inside and out, but live it out, right? The Bible says, don't just listen to the word, do the word. So that has translated. I'm very regimented because of that discipline as an athlete. Um, my mornings are sacred to me. Um, they're like my non-negotiable. So while I might have meetings all week, I never give up my morning time. And that came from learning the importance of spending time with God in the morning before the day picks up pace. And I learned that in jail, to be honest with you, because in jail, when the day picked up pace, the day would devour anyone. Didn't matter who you were. If you had not spent time in the morning, in solitude, in Christ, that type of environment will devour a person. So um, discipline, devotion staying committed right enduring obstacles as an athlete whether it was an injury whether it was opposition from a teammate or a coach you had to learn endurance you had to stick to the goal as a runner know that there's a finish line and no matter what you are up against you run that race with endurance so again this is all spiritual discipline spiritual talk it all translates to how i live my life as a christian and ultimately as i step into the office of pastor and let me kind of go outside of athletics. I was a passionate young man, Jeffrey, in, in the way of the world. I did things passionately. And I go, wow, look how mismanaged and misplaced that passion was. I was a passionate young man. Now let's translate that to how I should be as passionate about the things of God or even more than I was about the things of the world and, and the success of the world. So the translation today is I understand faithfulness. And God looks at us at, in terms of faithfulness. Are we faithful with what he has given to us? Not necessarily successful. And that's like countercultural, right? Because we measure success with wins. How many wins do you have? Numbers. How many people work for you? How much money do you have in the bank? And God's like, no, I'm not really impressed with all that. I'm impressed with you being a good steward and being faithful. I want to be a faithful pastor with what God has entrusted me with today. So good. And uh, Matthew Mayer, I enjoy how your website is not your name. Maybe that's because more people would confuse that with uh, the singer-songwriter, but it's Truth Over Trend. Can you just share where you came up with that name and then continue with the soccer story? Yeah, it was a process. And I'm glad you picked up on the fact that it's not my name because when I got in trouble, and we'll get to that in 2009, I spoke out on the speaking circuit, which is unprecedented to do so before incarceration, before trial. I felt compelled, again, going back to my father and how he raised me and my brothers, you make a mistake, you own your mistake. You handle the consequences, you don't justify it. And what came with my platform as a pro soccer player was the opportunity to speak out 
and somebody invited me into some schools and I did so. There was a presentation that I did and it went viral. And when I got locked up, schools across the country were requesting me to come speak, but obviously I'm in custody. So they decided to send that presentation. And long story short, they put it on a website and this is all in my absence. So I didn't see the website, Jeffrey, and they chose to call the website thematmayorstory.com. So that's when my name was attached to it. And the victim, his family, which is part of my, my crime that we'll get to, his family supported the website. They even contributed to the website early on. I blogged from jail for 55 months, which meant I wrote daily a journal and would send it home by snail mail and my parents would upload it to the website and people from all over the world. And this is where the singer songwriter, Matt Mars, his last name, same spelling was getting mistaken for me. So people are writing me in jail thinking that I'm the singer and they're like, your, your testimony is amazing. Now we know where you get the inspiration for your music. And I have to write them back. Like, I appreciate that, but <laughs> I'm not the singer. I'm the soccer player. So the website was the Matt So much ministry was birthed in tragedy. When I got out, and I saw the website and I saw the activity, it never sat well that my name was attached to it. Hmm. And I wanted to change that immediately. So I got together with my team, my, my family, people that I trusted. And I said, I wanna revamp the website. I don't want my name on it. And uh, I think we just lost Matt. Here he is. So long story short, we went And again, this is Jeff Fuller, Matthew Mayer, truthovertrend.com is uh, the website. Hopefully we'll get him back uh, in a little bit. Um, on Instagram and Twitter, it's truthovertrend. And uh, we're just so excited to hear this story. Make sure you check out the website, truthovertrend. He's also a pastor, uh, Coastal Christian Ocean City is uh, the name of the church where he's pastoring. And you can find that website here on the YouTube link at Living Hope Wesleyan Church or at Jay Fuller Interviews is the uh, YouTube link for that. So we hope that uh, he will be back soon. It's a phenomenal story. Uh, a kid with great parents, uh, three older brothers growing up, um, lots of opportunity. And then he uh, goes on to play professional soccer. And I, uh, I'm excited about sharing uh, this story with you. Um, as we wait uh, for Matthew to return. I just want to show this website, and if we can, just bring up a little bit here. Basketball, played football, um, but as I got older, we started to narrow out the, the sports path, and soccer was what I really excelled at. March, April. And that's some of the video there of uh, Matthew Mayer. And Matthew, I think we have you back. Welcome back. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm sorry about that, guys. Um, I guess every time I no get worries, a phone you... call on my cell, it just goes off. Oh, that's all right, but we're glad to have you back. Um, let's fast forward a little bit to uh, the opportunity you had to play professional soccer. That that must have been pretty amazing, although I assume your brother had been playing, so you knew a little bit about the business, so to speak. Correct. Was that your goal when you went to college is to play professionally? You know, it was because he was already playing and I saw the, I guess, you know, the notoriety, the status, it was more pride driven with the ability to match the opportunity. It just came naturally, just kind of fell into the rut of my life. There was no other thought. I was a soccer player through and through that paid for my college education. The opportunity to get drafted in my senior year came to be, and I just kind of went with it. You know, there was no stopping and going, wait a second, is this what I want to do for the next X amount of years of my life? So it was because of my older brother, but it also was because I thought it would have been a cool thing to do playing mm -hmm. professional soccer. And I pursued that dream and had uh, the opportunity to, to live that out for a couple seasons. What position did you play? Forward my entire life, goal scorer, recruited as a goal scorer in college, played forward striker as a freshman and sophomore, and then eventually made the transition to a defensive mid slash sweeper position the way we played in college because one of the senior center backs went out with an injury. And it was in that moment where our coach kind of scrambled, was looking for somebody to fill that role. And I volunteered. I was like, hey, I can do it. Became like a utility player and fell in love with defense, which was foreign to me because I was the one 
exposing defenders. And I think that's what made me so good at that level was because the game became easier. I no longer had to worry about turning a defender and scoring. My primary responsibility was to block defenders. And I guess being a forward and having the ability to maintain the ball, um, it only made me better as that defensive player. So press into that a little bit um, and just being able to pivot because I know some younger players or even adults, they don't want to change their quote position. They think they're above that. Uh, how important was it for you to be available to pivot? And what would you say to younger players that say, no, I'm the goal scorer. I'm not going to switch positions. I would say it's, it's crucial to be a utility player nowadays. Uh, most college athletes that are looking to go to the next level have to be able to play multiple positions. I mean, most professionals, if you ask them, they probably started out at a different position and landed in the position that they're at at the highest level. So the pivoting and being able to adapt as an athlete is extremely crucial because somebody might have your position better than you and you have to be able to say, I need, I want to play. I'm essentially willing to play over here as long as it's going to benefit the team. So I would encourage any young players, man, just take advantage of playing multiple positions, learn the game. Really. When you have a good acumen of the game, soccer, basketball, baseball, it doesn't make a difference. You bring value to any team. I even played goalie Jeffrey as a pro soccer player in uh, 2007, 2008 season. We traveled. Our primary goalie was Tony Miola, United States soccer. Great. Tony Miola. He got hurt or something, and then the backup goalie got like a red card, and neither of them. So my coach, it was uh, uh, Omid Namazi, legend Omid Namazi. He put me in goal. Why? Because he knew I was an athlete, right? And I actually had several saves that game, and like that year, like I, my my save rate was like a hundred percent or something, which is funny because these goalies had been scored on. So just a funny story about my pro experience. Well, I have to ask you about that. Like, how fast was that soccer ball coming at you? Like, did you get nervous? They come quick. Heck yeah. It was indoor arena. And I think we were in Detroit, to be honest with you. But yes, you're sitting out like real nervous, but you just you just go into it with whatever. You're used to the pace of the game. Um, made a couple quick saves. Thankful the defenders that were in front of me threw their bodies in front of some shots. But yeah, man, it, it was quite an experience. And uh, you mentioned injuries. Injuries were certainly part of any uh, athlete's life. And uh, how did you deal with injuries in the past when you were younger or in college? Was that just something you were bummed out, but you knew to ice it to rest it? What was your typical protocol when you were injured or hurt? I never had serious injuries. There were always some nagging injuries, ankle injuries. Um, we'd get them taped up, would do the necessary rehabilitation, the icing, the resting strengthening of the ankle, a couple hamstring tweaks, never tore it. The major injury that really sidelined me was when I was a pro and it happened on March 1st, 2009. And it's when I tore my ACL and my meniscus, the two ligaments in my right knee, uh, got caught in the turf in the Philadelphia spectrum and went down and that required surgery. And that was the beginning of the end. That was the end, the end of my professional soccer career. And that was the week that unfolded where I went yeah, out and made a bad decision. Yeah. Yeah. Let's pause right there because um, uh, I was just thinking, what, what was your faith like uh, the week before you got injured? Were you like the head chaplain? I know this answer, but I want, were you the head chaplain? Were you uh, taking your Bible to practice every day? Where, where was your walk with Jesus? I would say it was compartmentalized, right? met with some of the other believers on the teams that I played for, would do the Bible study before the game, was interactive with any given chaplain that was assigned to that professional team, was part of fellowship of Christian athletes, did the interviews like this with Christian interviewers and asked, answered the right way. I'm a Christian. I'm going to give God glory. But outside of that arena, I was living contrary to a man of faith. So my faith was more intellectual. It wasn't experiential. Yeah, and I yeah. think that divide, hypocrisy, I was wearing a mask, yeah. I was whatever the crowd needed me to be, and that was my faith. So faith that has such a surface presentation is eventually going to 
get exposed. And it's usually trouble, tragedy, suffering that exposes where we're at with God. Yeah, I had an opportunity to uh, meet, I forget his name, but he was a chaplain for the New York Yankees and the New York Giants. And I said, what does it take for players to come to you? And he said, there's three things. If they're at the end of the contract, if they get injured, or if somebody got pregnant. And so I had a chuckle, but he's like, no, seriously, crisis is what brings people to God and God's there to welcome people with open arms. That's right. Um, share from that point when you got injured. Toward the ACL meniscus Sunday in the Philadelphia Spectrum. Went to the doctors for an MRI on Wednesday. Confirmed the irreparable damage in the knee, which would only be repaired by surgery. Scheduled the surgery for March 12th, which was the following week. That weekend in between surgery and the, the incident, the injury, we were traveling to Baltimore for a game on Saturday. I was on the injury reserve at this point, which meant I would not be traveling on Saturday with the team. So Friday night, instead of staying in, contrary to my older brother, Anthony, who I was playing with at the time with the Philadelphia kicks told me he had been there with an injury. He recovered. You'll get through this. I didn't heed that wise counsel. And I went out on that Friday night, met up with some friends in the city of Philadelphia, went out to some bars that I had frequented, had some drinks, was under the influence, thought I could make it to my next destination. So I got into my vehicle with a good friend as a passenger and we set out to go to Atlantic City from Philadelphia, and I ended up rear-ending another vehicle, Jeffrey, on the Atlantic City Expressway. In hindsight, when I think about that, I was totally oblivious to, one, anybody else being involved or hurt because of, the, of what unfolded on the crime scene at the accident site. I knew I had struck somebody. I saw the vehicle on the side of the road, uh, but I also saw four individuals standing outside of the vehicle, so I reasoned that they were good, they were the passengers and the driver, they made it out just as me and my friend made it out. And we kind of all just waited there. It was chaotic because people are pulling over in the middle of the highway. We were going extremely fast. So imagine cars that saw it, they completely pull over to come help out what they saw. So while I was kind of talking to people that were saying, are you okay, are you okay? The cops showed up and the cops showed up because they were a mile and a half up the road at the state police barracks. So you're talking that quick. Now I'm in custody. Again, I'm not thinking the worst. I'm thinking about self. I crashed. I'm going to get a DUI. I'm going to lose my license. I got to get surgery next week. Were you thinking about your dad? Yeah. Again, when, when things began to settle, they put me into a holding cell. I began to think about my father and how disappointed he was going to be in his youngest boy. And it wasn't until probably in the middle of the night, the, the incident, the tragedy, the accident, we often call it the motor vehicle collision because it wasn't an accident. It was an egregious decision that I made. It was in the middle of the night. So three, four, five AM. And I'm still kind of, I'm conscious. I'm aware of what happened. And I overheard a dispatch conversation and the dispatch conversation was outside of the jail cell. And I couldn't see them, but I could hear the muffled radio sound all night. And then the muffled radio sound, which caught my attention, w went just like this. Accident on the Atlantic City Expressway is currently being cleaned up. And I remember listening. And then they said the, the driver in the black Escalade is in custody. That was me. And then they said the driver in the town and country is deceased. And I went into, like, shock. I refused to believe that what I just heard was true. I don't really remember the next several hours. They took me to the hospital where they would draw my blood, which would ultimately say I was 0.15. My BAC was 0.15. That's double the legal limit. I would come back. They would take me into a side interrogation room. And it's in that room where I asked the first question. They sat me down and I said, may I ask a question? And I said, sure, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say will be used against you in the court of law. So I spoke anyway and I said, did the other driver die? And the officer in charge of the interrogation said, son, brace yourself. And I just, I wept. I just completely lost it. The police officers were class acts. They came over. One of them brought a box of tissues. They consoled me. They waited until I could gain my composure. And then they said, son, you do not have to say a word. 
Um, we're going to read your rights yet again. We're going to push play on this recorder and we're going to take it from there. And I had no reason to not speak. And I answered every question as best as I possibly could from take us through your week. I actually said, Jeffrey, get this. I tore my ACL, my meniscus on Sunday. And one of the cops in that room said, I was at that game wow. in the Philadelphia spectrum. I saw that. I know who you are. I told him what I did the day before. I told him what time I woke up on this particular day, where I went, who I was with, how many drinks I recollected I had, how fast I was going. And I gave them all the facts that I could remember. And then in the middle of the questioning, a secretary came in and she introduced herself and said, excuse me, um, his father's here and can I send him in? And then she formally introduced him and she said, Chief John Mayer using his title yeah. and every officer in the room before my father walked in literally was like, are you kidding me? Why didn't you tell us that's who your dad was? And I said, what difference would it have made? Like, what did that have to do with what I did? And then my father walked in. He acknowledged every single colleague in that room. Now, these are state police officers, prosecutors, detectives. He's the um, current undersheriff of Cape May County, former police chief. He comes in. He doesn't say a word. He just acknowledges them. And then he walks down to the end of the table where I'm sitting and I'm broken and devastated. I'm barely looking at him. And he 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 bends down and he kisses me, Jeffrey. And he looks at me and he says, son, we're going to get through this. And I can only tell that story in hindsight and, and recognize the fact that I sat in my absolute worst, total humiliation. I had let him down, my community down. I took somebody's life, a family attached to that man who I didn't know. Like you wanna talk about utter devastation. And as I sat in my worst, my father, my earthly father still gave me his best. Mm -hmm. And I often say that's exactly what our heavenly father does for us we are sinners. We deserve death. And our, our heavenly father gives us his best when he gives us his son, Jesus. So my father then joined in on some of the conversations, what we were looking at. Um, they released me under my father's custody. I was charged instantly with driving under the influence DUI and a seat a seatbelt misdemeanor. Now you might go, what really? Well, it's because the accident reconstruction and the investigation had not been um underway yet that takes about two to three weeks man they go in with their science they discover yeah. all the details you could possibly imagine and then two weeks after that state police came to my house mind you i wasn't there in cape may new jersey i was in philadelphia because i had the surgery still after the weekend i still had the surgery i still had to go through rehab and they came with first degree aggravated manslaughter charges to my parents house when my mother fielded the state police, she called my father. My father called a contact and basically said, listen, don't put a warrant out for my son's arrest. He's not running. He's in Philadelphia. We will turn him in tomorrow. And that's exactly what we did. I hobbled into the Atlantic County police station, turned myself in. I sat in a holding cell while my family labored to post bail. By God's grace, they did. I was able to go home on bail, on bond, for the next 10 months prior to my sentencing day, which would take place January 7th of 2010. How was, how was your mom throughout the process and which brother did you feel like you were closest to or was closest to you during that time? Great question. Um, I'll start with my brothers first. My brother, Michael, who is 22 months older than me, we were tight. He was my best friend. He was the one I leaned on. He was the one that I spent most time with during that awkward period. My brother, Anthony, was the one I was playing professional soccer with. He was, and he would tell you, he was mad at me. He was angry because of what it reflected on him, the team, our family. Um, but we were all tight. They were the reason why I was able to navigate those uncertain times. My mom did not find out anybody had been hurt, let alone killed until my father pulled up in my driveway with me and my father, his brother-in-law, which is my mom's oldest yeah. brother who lives next to my parents. So when they heard that I was in a fatal accident, nobody knew who was involved. In my mom's, in my mom's mind when she found out, 
she assumed that I just got into a car crash by myself and Matt's okay. It didn't cross her mind, Jeffrey, that wow. somebody else was involved. So when we pulled up and I got out of the car, my, my mom's brother, my uncle Jack went into the house before me and said, Andrea, go easy on them. And then, she, and then told her the news. She went into shock. She went into complete shock. So when I walked in now, she hates when I tell this story, but I'm going to be real. I walk into my, my own home, my parents' home and my mother, I could see she's completely crushed. And the first thing she said to me, and, I, and I'll explain what, what she meant by this in a second, in, in case any listeners are like, help, what a bad mom. She said, it should have been you. And you might go, wait, what? How could a mom who unconditionally loves her children, how could she wish that on me? Well, can I tell you how? Yeah, please. My oldest brother, John, in 2005, suddenly died. My mother and father already buried a child. They already navigated that unthinkable tragedy for a parent. I was 21 at the time as, as a college student. My brother, Michael, my brother, Anthony, we all traveled back to our hometown to have a funeral. My mother and father knew what it was like to bury a child. When my mom said, it should have been you, she wasn't wishing death on me. She was saying, basically, it would have been easier to lose another child than to know her child took somebody else's life. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I went upstairs. I went into a pitch black, dark room, my old bedroom, and I just laid in my misery. I laid in the guilt and the weight of shame. And the enemy was reminding me that I was worthless. And if it wasn't for the church community, the Christian community, my family, people of faith that surrounded me, helped me walk through the legal consequences, the emotional consequences. I guess I'll say this in case anybody's wondering out there. I didn't throw a pity party. I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't feel bad for myself. I remember thinking the only thing I can do is own this and, and seek forgiveness. That was it. My heart wanted to seek forgiveness from this family. I wrote them a letter by God's grace. They received it. They said, thank you. That's all I knew. I knew the next time I would have an opportunity to express my remorse and my heart about what I did was on court day. I didn't care about the sentencing. I was looking at 10 to 30 years that, that didn't shake me. I remember thinking my God is in control. Uh, this is when I fell back on my faith foundation, yeah, what I was yeah. raised on. I'm going to say sorry to this family. I looked them in their eyes. They deserve an apology. No excuses, no justification. And that's kind of what drove me for the next 10 months was knowing that I'll be able to share my heart with them and whether or not they would reciprocate and forgive me. I knew that I couldn't control that either. So 10 months existed between the incident, March 7th, 2009 and January 7th, 2010, where I would stand before a judge. And I don't know how far you want me to go into the sentencing day. Um, yeah, please, I, please continue. I mean, it's so mesmerizing, but I just look at the maturity or when you said earlier, train up a child in the way he should go and he should not depart from it. When it came down to brass tacks or whatever the expression is, you accepted responsibility, but then you returned to what your parents had displayed for so long. Um, as, as we talk about the sentencing day, yeah, I just, um, I just think about that other family and you said one person uh, died. Were there other people in the vehicle? You said there were four people around, but there was just a single driver in that vehicle. Single driver in the vehicle. Again, when I recollected the accident scene, those four individuals were, people that got out of their cars and went over to the collision. So I thought they were part of it, but they weren't. And we know that because the police cross-referenced cross my testimony with the witnesses that came forward. And they're like, wow, that was the four people he thought he saw. They were witnesses. Um, he was a father, a man named Hort Cap, 55 years of age. He is from Cambodia. He took his family from Cambodia during the Khmer Rouge killing fields incident, gave his family a better life in the United States of America from Philadelphia. Um, in the courtroom, his one daughter was able to present who her daddy was. It was the first time I got to hear who he was up until that point, had no clue who he was. 
she explained how he loved his children, his grandchildren. He loved his family. He was a hard worker. And like, it was beautiful, really. When you, it, yeah. it was crushing for me. No, I took him or was responsible for his life. But it was beautiful. And yeah. it gave everybody in the courtroom a picture of who this man was. And then her brother got up. And this is the oldest son. And his name's Noon. And Noon began to yell about how he heard about his father dying literally and that picture that you have up on the screen behind you is is what transpired he literally started yelling at me and he goes and you destroyed my world and like you could see it in the video there's a video of my testimony and he literally stopped and there was this composure that came over him and then he came over to me and we embraced and that's the picture behind you and it it blows my mind to look at it because Prior to that hug and that extension of forgiveness where he said, I forgive you, he was violently agitated about me. And rightfully so. I only tell you that to, to give you a sense of the mood he was in. So to this day, he can't, and, and I'm in contact with him to this day, he can't really explain what happened, what took over him in the courtroom. His sister and their family are like, this is not our brother. And the fact that he did that, and I often say, listen to this. I'm in the courtroom. I, I belong there. I deserve to be in the place of judgment. The whole point of that day was for the judge to render down a sentencing. Nothing I could do could get me out of it. And then a son stood up and interrupted that process. And that's exactly what the gospel is. Yeah. We all stand before a judge and we deserve to be there. And then a son stands up and gives us forgiveness and mercy. And that is what set me free. I went to jail on January 7th, 2010, physically incarcerated, but I tell people spiritually liberated. I went off and I had a honeymoon with Jesus for 55 months where I got to learn the word of God inside and out all over again, got to see it play out in my life. And there wasn't a day that went by in jail, 55 months that felt like 55 days that I wasn't imprisoned by God's peace. That's Philippians chapter four, verse seven. So again, Matthew Mayer, the website, truthovertrend.com, truthovertrend.com. You can find him on Instagram and Twitter, truthovertrend. But Matthew, this is just a phenomenal story. And you mentioned about the uh, continued relationship with that family and just writing those blog posts and uh, from uh, prison, but not even knowing, not e even being able to see them because they didn't have the internet available to you or whatever the case might be. Correct. Uh, when you came out, and you had opportunity to uh, be with this family and to see the positive impact from writing what you learned in prison. Were you overwhelmed or when you were in prison, did you have a sense of peace that God was just using this for a greater good? Yeah, I knew early on that there was a greater good in all of this. I knew Bible verses like Romans 8, 28. I knew Joel 2, 22, 25, excuse me, God restores the years eaten by the locust. And we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. I knew that I served a God who was able to recycle and bring beauty out of ashes. That's Isaiah. And I, and I watched it unfold. And it happened early enough, not only from the courtroom, the forgiveness extended. But when I left the courtroom in shackles and chains, I didn't know my family requested to meet the victim's family. And they mm -hmm. actually accepted. So in a side courtroom, my family and their family not only met, they held hands and prayed together and exchanged contact numbers. So that's what struck up this personal relationship, not only between my family and their family, but my mom specifically and one of his daughters, Somali. And to this day, my mom and Somali are extremely close. They stay in correspondence. She asks how I'm doing. I ask how she's doing. Uh, Noon and I were able to correspondence. Um, so like seeing that happening that early, I knew God was in it. And I knew he was going to be glorified through it. So my entire incarceration, I did other interviews. I did uh, the Star Ledger. I did A&E. They did like an accident reconstruction centered around my story, which talked about, you know, the incident, but also who the person was that caused it. I did time with former NBA all-star Jason Williams. If you recall him in the 90s, New Jersey Nets, him and I are like this to this day. I talked to him weekly. So you see God's hand on my life. And I know I didn't deserve it. So the best thing I could do was keep pointing back to God through all these outlets, all these interviews. 
that time in jail for me, and I'm a pastor now, which is hilarious, was my seminary. And I often say, seminary, get this, seminary without Jesus is a cemetery. Yeah. yeah. And a cemetery with Jesus becomes a seminary. So I learned about life in the place of death, jail. So when I got out, I knew there was a calling on my life. I knew that I had the gift to communicate, which I neglected my entire young life, even though people affirmed it. You know, my public speaking professor in college was like, you're a really good speaker and you're going to do this for a living one day. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to go play soccer. (laughs) So God was kind of grooming me and preparing me to do what I do today. I love communicating. I tell people, I don't just do this for a living. I live to do this. I live to communicate God's truth to a broken world. So I got out, I spoke on the speaking circuit instantly, State Farm Insurance, the banner behind you funded it. They sponsored it. I was in the public square, colleges, high schools, locker rooms, sharing my testimony and my story, hopefully encouraging or inciting, I say instigating these young kids to make the next right decision. Because the world we live in, they have every reason to make the wrong decisions. And I'm going, I need to counter that. I come with a very intense message. And that program has gone on for the past five, six years. State Farm has funded it, sponsored it. And that is what led me to ministry because I started speaking in churches. And the church that I'm at now, the pastor, Matt Stokes, invited me to be part of his church because I spoke at his son's high school. And that's how God used that opportunity to bring me into ministry. And that's what I call my home now at Coastal Christian Ocean City, which is a church. Well, thank you so much for uh, the time and just sharing your story. I have, I guess, a difficult question I want to ask. Nathan Harmon, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that name, but he had a similar situation. And when people would say to you, Matthew, I'm glad things worked out. But in my opinion, in their opinion, they feel like you should have spent more time behind bars. How do you communicate with them, but also know that God's given you a gift that whether you're behind bars or working behind a pulpit, you know that you're free? Yeah, so I guess I'll attack that with two answers. One, the idea is, and I've I've ran into people from my past and they go, you know, we're really glad things worked out for you. And whether they're sincere or not makes a difference, but often take that and I go, things didn't just work out for me. Number one, the Bible says God worked things out for me. That's where my faith is found. The second part, I got done a presentation in a high school and one of the students went online, Instagram and posted this um, comment basically saying, I'm a murderer. I deserved the death penalty. And You know, if New Jersey had the death penalty for scumbags like you, I I would hope you would get it. And you know what? I wrote back and I said, if New Jersey had the death penalty for scumbags like me, I would have bowed to that too. There wasn't a day that went by where I was excusing my behavior. I committed myself to the legal system. They found it fitting to give me the time they gave me. And I'm beyond that now. So while people can still hold that against me, and believe I should have got more time. That's not the realistic outcome of the due process. So I did my time for the crime. And now whether people want to kind of smear my testimony or hold me back, it doesn't affect me. You know why? Because the only people on planet earth and there are 7 billion that had any right to hold what I did against me was the family. And they're the only people who I would actually concede to and they chose to forgive me. And if they chose to forgive me, then why would I let anybody else in this world, a naysayer or a hater, stop what God has called me to? I hope that comes off the right way, but I often think about that, like the family forgave me and they support this mission. They publicly affirm and support this platform because I honor their father and I honor my faith. So anybody else that's saying you deserve more, I go, that's fine. If that is the case, I would have, I would have surrendered to that. Um, And then I often turn it into a gospel message like, yeah, we all deserve capital punishment. But the gospel says that Jesus took that punishment and gave us what we didn't deserve. So, Well, so good. It's so true. And I don't know. I don't know if it's because this room is cold or I'm nervous, but these goosebumps make me feel like 
the Holy Spirit, uh, God's presence, it's made known as you communicate the story of redemption, of hope, of healing, freedom, salvation, and that it's available to uh, anyone that would ask. And so I will ask you if you would just pray for us as we are struggling or we know of people that are given towards addictions or whatever proclivity it is, but would you just pray that we all would know God's freedom as you have known it? Yeah, let's pray right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you for the opportunity to glorify your name. First and foremost, thankful for the opportunity that we can approach your throne room of grace and find grace and mercy for times of need. I pray even now as we dialogued and had a conversation centered around redemption, that this would go far and wide, that people would hear about your glory and your grace extended to us when we don't deserve it. There is no merit that allows us to have access to you. It's mercy, mercy alone. I pray for every soul out there that is struggling with different addictions, different issues, Lord, that are keeping them from you or experiencing your good grace. I pray that your Holy Spirit begins to destroy any chains of bondage. I pray that people would recognize that your son Jesus, when he was sent, he came to die for all and that it is a free gift for all to receive. I pray for our country right now that you would provide healing to those places that are fractured, divided, and broken. Lord, we trust you. I pray a blessing upon Jeffrey and the interviews that he does as the weeks unfold, that you would give him uh, more favor. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, Matthew. Matthew Mayer, truthovertrend.com. Thank you so much for making the time. I want to be friends. I want to go and hang out and uh, get to know you and uh, play some basketball. You can teach me uh, some soccer, but I am just so uh, thankful for this opportunity. And uh, thank you for making the time to share your story. Thank you again, Jeffrey. God bless you guys. All right. Again, Matthew Mayer, truthovertrend.com. With that, I'm out. Pastor at Living Hope Wesleyan Church. Uh, Pastor at hopefulvermont.org is the email. And we just want to say, take some time to learn from somebody else's story because it's going to make your story better when we all know that God loves us, he's for us, and his plans, well, he has the best in mind. So keep walking after him. Thanks all. We'll talk to you soon.